This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today marks two years since COVID-19 was first reported in Canada. A 56-year-old man who had just returned from China and was admitted to Sunnybrook with pneumonia-like symptoms became patient zero. The first case in Canada. Since then, Canada has logged nearly 3 million infections. The first time we reported on COVID, and it wasn't called that then, was a few days before that. It was on January 21st, 2020. And here is what I said that day, quote, it is a scary new threat to public health that's reminding us of the SARS outbreak in 2003. So far, six people have died from this virus, which emerged out of China very recently. It has been confirmed that the infection is spreadable among humans, and it has spread beyond the city of Wuhan, China, where it originated. That's what I had to say, boy, and it certainly has much outstripped the SARS outbreak, if that's what we were worried about. And what were public health officials thinking? On February 4th, 2020, the chief medical officer of health, Teresa Tam, said again, and I quote, the risk of novel coronavirus remains low in Canada, even if cases have been reported here. Measures are in place to prevent the onward spread from travel-related cases. Boy, she could not have been more wrong. So, what do you think? Here we are, heading into the third year of this. How have you been doing? I keep seeing studies that people's mental health is deteriorating. Um, uh, a lot of people have taken a hit in terms of their livelihoods. There's isolation. Uh, but, you know, um, we've been living with this. Are people managing? What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 Four seven forty, and uh, the big question now is: Are we on the way out? Uh, are we almost there? We had a warning from the World Health Organization saying, "Hey, there's no guarantee this is the last variant." Uh, we also heard from the head of Pfizer, Dr. Albert Bourlage. He said he thinks things will be pretty well, very close to normal within a few months. Let us hope that he is right. Well, right now I am joined by some of our frequent contributors that we have relied on and thanks so much over these last two years. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much. Hello. Thanks. Thank you. So let us begin with Dr. Furness. So 
did you ever think that we would be here all this time later? I think my imagination extended as far as Delta, imagining things could get a little bit worse, and I did not have the the foresight to see such a gigantic jump in the evolution. And it's 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 not that Omicron was descended from Delta; it's not, but an evolution in coronavirus overall to be as contagious as measles, which is really what we've got right now. I did not see that coming. So, no, I have to say I've I have felt humbled uh, over the past two two months or so that um, that this is this is a level of challenge for us that I think we can still win and will still win, but I did not see it coming. Uh, uh, Alon, Dr. Vaisman, what about you? Yeah, I think it's very important. I think that's the most important lesson of the pandemic is time and time again, we're all humbled, and any kind of plans or predictions we make are constantly being revised and revisited. I think for me, one of the biggest changes in my mind was the change from the vaccine efficacy in terms of preventing transmission for milder, milder asymptomatic disease. You know, initially we were thinking it's quite good, but with Omicron, that calculation has changed. It's not nearly as good. And despite it being very good against protection against death and hospitalization, the fact that it's not as good as preventing transmission has unfortunately resulted in many cases still. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ja, what about you? Are you well, surprised I, we're still here? Uh, well, I'm, su- I'm not surprised that uh, we... Uh, well, l- let me caution that. that it is surprising how infectious Omicron was. I think that cost, that caught us all. But it's not surprising to me that we would expect variants that could threaten us simply because what was needed from the outset was a strategy to vaccinate the whole world and to decrease places where variants could grow. But we've very much failed on that. So Delta came from uh, basically uncontrolled transmission and think of it as a a nice variant uh, factory uh, in India. And Omicron came from South Africa from a combination of of, um, lots of people infected with HIV plus this new variant that was circulated and low levels of vaccination. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, the, the nature of the virus and its changes is always surprising, uh, and that's you know you're competing against billions of years of evolution on how the virus behaves. But our political inability to vaccinate the world, to me, isn't surprising. Doctor Furness, what's your take on how Canada has done? I think it's hard to come up with one Canadian narrative. I was always so proud of the Atlantic provinces uh, up until New Brunswick d- d- sort of decided to jump in the deep end this past summer, and, and the, the, the regional strategy then came unraveled. But up to that point, they were, I think, exemplary world leaders. And then you had provinces in the West that were really going the opposite way, that were being more libertarian and would put some pretty bad outcomes. And now I see British Columbia having just taken a, a swan dive off the tallest cliff I've ever seen, uh, saying that we're just going to let it rip in hospitals even. We're not even going to try and separate COVID-positive patients. And Ontario and Quebec have alternated between sort of boom and bust of severe restrictions and, and then opening things up. So there isn't one Canadian narrative. None of the narratives have been 100% effective, but there's a lot of times where I wish I lived in Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, in terms of how uh, the numbers, first of all, the numbers of people who are infected, the numbers of deaths we had, how did we do? And, and also, you, you work on the front lines at University Health Network. Uh, how did our healthcare system hold up? 
Yeah, it's, it's, I think it all, to compare, it all depends on what you're going to compare to. You know, how Canada compares to the United States and the U.K. is generally favorable in terms of the number of deaths. Initially, one of the worst outcomes in Canada was among the long-term care. Uh, individuals living in long-term care, congregate settings, and our mortality was quite high as a result. So that was, for sure, one of the areas that Canada faltered in. In terms of how things have been going in the healthcare system itself, you know, there's lots of strengths that were highlighted in the pandemic, but, of course, a lot of weaknesses in terms of the shortages of staff. Our facilities, I think that's one of the really big ones that hasn't been discussed enough is our acute care facilities are outdated. We still have patients being admitted to, to multi-bedded rooms with two patients, four patients, even six-bed patients. And that's really a huge problem when it comes to a virus that's so transmissible. So I think improving our infrastructure is really one of the big, big areas that we need to do better on. Well, yeah, and that's, that's something that's highlighted, especially in long-term care. I mean, yes, uh, I am going to take a call from Marianne and Vaughn. Hello, Marianne. Hi. Um, I wanted to say my husband did get COVID back in um, in April, and he was in the hospital for seven weeks. Oh, my goodness. In critical care, oh, in dear. isolation. I didn't get to see him. He went through a nightmare. It was uh, a miracle that he managed to come home. He was also on oxygen for another couple of months when he came home. People do not, un- of course, you, okay, I got it. I got a little bit of a cold, but there is a real COVID out there. And my husband, this is 10 months, and my husband is, my husband is gone from compared to what he used to be. I don't know if he'll ever get better. His lungs are ruined, and, and yet people complain that they still refuse to get this vaccine. You're taking away my freedom. Freedom? People, you are in the greatest country in the world. You have all the freedom you could possibly ask for. Go to North Korea, Afghanistan, Cuba. You go to those countries. They have a lot of freedom. Why don't you go there and do what they tell you to do? You know, I'm so sick of these selfish people that refuse to take responsibility. And, you know, I it's something, yes, you don't wish it on anyone, but sometimes you kind of have to say, well, you know what? Maybe you should taste it. Marianne, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry know, to I, hear about your husband and wish him all the very best in a full recovery. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, so for a long time, this was characterized as the pandemic of the unvaccinated. So has that changed with Omicron, Dr. Furness? It's changed a little bit. I think we're most concerned for, for our ICUs and our worst possible outcomes. We're most concerned of those who aren't vaccinated. That, of course, includes people who have chosen not to, but also every child under the age of five cannot be. And that, by the way, right now, that group, zero to four, that represents the highest rate of, uh, of admissions to hospital now. It's still low in absolute terms, but it is really concerning. That's the group that we're seeing the biggest impact on. And we have relatively little capacity in terms of pediatric intensive care because we, we typically as a population don't need that. So it's, it's, uh, that's, that's really concerning to me. But 
there's no question that if you've got two doses and it's been more than six months, you can have a really hard ride with Omicron. And and the, the big problem I, I really want people to remember and understand is what feels like a mild case, what feels like the sniffles, could be actually much worse uh, on a vascular level in terms of what's, what it's doing with microclotting and loss of brain tissue and autoimmune disease and, and a number of things that have been grouped together as long COVID, not very well understood. But that's, that's something that vaccinated people can get to. So it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer now. Well, yeah, and you say uh, you can have a hard ride with two doses. Well, uh, I know of people who had a fairly hard ride after three doses. So uh, there you go. Um, and uh, Dr. Vaisman, this is partly a political question. I just was talking to my political panel, and, you know, a lot of people are using the fact that it still is transmissible among vaccinated people to push back uh, against restrictions. Um, Do you see that as a dangerous thing or sort of inevitable, or how do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it. I think when people are deciding about what they should do in terms of restrictions and individual choices, there is a distinction there. For as an individual, getting decided to get vaccinated versus having a mandate forced upon you is really dependent on how how well the vaccine is protecting you against transmission. And the lesser that is happening, the more argument these individuals have. But I think I still think that argument holds. These vaccine mandates still hold when we're talking about high risk situations like hospitals and places where we're worried about transmission. And in terms of restrictions, the broader society, in terms of whether restrictions are working or when they should be used, really that boils down to how effective they've been and using it very kind of, I do agree that it should be used very carefully because we really only want to target the measure of avoiding hospitalizations and hospital deaths. We really want to avoid overwhelming the system. So I think we do need to move away from this constant cycle of opening and closing and think about very carefully what we're doing here with restrictions. Okay, we've got to take a break. Let me give the numbers out again before we go to break. It is the two-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of COVID in Canada. It happened here in Toronto. It was somebody returning from Wuhan. Uh, the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I want to hear from you about how you're feeling about all of this. Uh, people are sick of it. That is the one thing that is certain. People are tired, especially people working in healthcare on the front lines. This has been just a draining, exhausting two years. And with Omicron, which is so contagious, we're seeing worker shortages because people are catching this, whether they get a mild case or not. So uh, we'll drill down on that when we come back. Give us a shout. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the two-year anniversary since the first confirmed case of COVID here in Canada. And uh, Dr. Furness, are you brave enough to make a prediction or a thought about where we are at? I know after uh, in the fall, you know, when Delta was winding down, we thought we were close to the end. And then there was this. Sure. All, all 
I'll be brave, but it'll be a pretty qualified prediction. Um, you know, there's a thing called Farr's Law that says that um, um, an outbreak is going to be symmetrical. The steeper the curve up, the steeper the curve down, and that would suggest that we should be getting out of this actually quite quickly because it hit us like a ton of bricks very, very quickly. But we, that we've, we're messing with that. We're messing with it by, well, except in British Columbia, um, we're, we're instituting things to try and slow that curve a little bit. We're wearing masks and, and we're, we're vaccinating and we're doing these things. So I think we may end up with a longer peak and that may be longer than we wish it to be. It could be a few weeks. When it starts to come down more, uh, it'll keep coming down. I think we're going to be in for a summer of little COVID. And then the question is, does something else, does a new variant emerge? And I think what's already been said about our failure, Dr. Jaw's point, that our failure to vaccinate the world is essentially creating a, a, a petri dish for more variants to emerge. Well, I think we're going to have a few months in the summer to try and move the needle. I, I, I don't, don't want to be naive. I don't think we can fix the world in, in a summer. But the more progress we can make, the better we'll be. Okay. And Dr. Vaisman, I have another question. You know, before all of this, as many of us uh, and the experts were thinking about health care, they were kind of moving away from acute care, hospital care, more in the community. And now we're seeing that actually our hospital capacity is pretty limited. We are way backlogged on very critical care, surgery, uh, cancer care. Is this going to sort of change the trajectory, do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. I think um, with pandemics, with these acute crises, it always brings out new innovations and new ways to provide care. And in this case, the big kind of revelation is, uh, is virtual care, which I use personally for my patients. And, you know, it's more patient-centered in many cases, especially when you consider Ontario there's a lot of concentration of medical care provided in large cities, but not in rural areas, and of course the aging population. So there's many reasons why virtual care can become a huge benefit to many patients. And so moving away from acute care centers, that's again, that's one of the thoughts around all of this. Even moving away from EDs, there's uh, innovations going on at UHN to provide more care virtually for patients who come into the ED in order to prevent admission. So certainly a lot of these things are being worked. ED, on you mean emergency? Yes, yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, the emergency department, so that we don't have patients waiting in the ED or in the emergency department being admitted to hospital. So offloading the acute care sites has been one of the priorities now, and, and really the innovations are coming quite rapidly now on that front. Dr. Ja, what do you think? I think uh, I agree with the other uh, uh, panelists that uh, it is a time to innovate. What I, If we step back and say, well, you know, what have we gotten out of two years, I am um, surprised very pleasantly of how quickly vaccines became available and uh, implemented worldwide. And they're remarkably effective still, even with the Omicron against protecting against hospitalizations or deaths. And remember, that was very much our original goal is saying, well, we have to protect our healthcare system from collapse. And um, that uh, to large extent was the, the goal of vaccines. I think we've, however, done quite disappointingly on something that was equally suggested, which is rapid testing being available right from the start. Um, and that would have been a key tool, as we've seen in Omicron, where the number of cases uh, far exceeds the testing capacity. So we've, we've learned some lessons, but I hope going forward, uh, governments, and this will be very much at the provincial level, will say, well, how do we rejig our healthcare systems to be able to deal with these occasional events that uh, that really are quite disruptive? Uh, but the the 
order of 2022 is to focus on vaccinating the world. I think we've, we've got to keep paying attention to that. We can't be, keep playing whack-a-mole with variants popping up in different places and going into all sorts of blunt instruments like lockdowns. Yeah, but we, it's we not just... To get, uh, it, we have to get the world vaccinated this year. It's not just about getting them vaccines. I mean, we're hearing stories about millions of doses being destroyed in places like Nigeria. It's, uh, you know, I mean, you get, some of these get stories get exaggerated, but on the whole, the main issue is insufficient supply. In Sierra Leone, where I work, um, and, you know, that's where I traveled uh, several times during the pandemic, the, if there were enough good vaccines available, the people are willing to line up and get them. So I think, and all the concerns about vaccine hesitancy that we have here are simply not as prominent an issue in the places that need them. So we, if, if we achieve that, then we can anticipate a time saying, okay, this is the end of the pandemic. We're in an endemic phase. If we don't, my fear is, as Dr. Furness says, we'll be just, we have a few months window and then we're facing another wave. So we can't keep playing whack-a-mole. We've got to have a global solution that actually works. Dr. Furness, we have these sizable uh, minorities, more so in the United States, that are anti-vax, which seems to coexist with a lot of very unsavory things, um, including uh, anti-science. You know, do you have any thoughts about, you know, the impact on medicine in general, because that seems to be growing, conspiracy theories, whatever else, uh, and hate groups, all, all kind of aligned. There's no question that there's an increasing politicization of science and politicization of, of reality, even. So we're, we're seeing along ideological lines in some cases, or in many cases, especially in the States, but here too, uh, people who are equating uh, vaccine mandates with a direct assault on freedom, which is a very, very odd take, uh, there's, there's, <laughs> to, my, to my mind. And yet this is happening. But we also have to remember that anti-vaxxing isn't one thing, and it's also not new. Anti-vaxxing was a, was a phenomenon around Spanish flu 100 years ago, around smallpox more than 100 years ago, there were anti-vax protests. In this case, though, we can segment them a little bit to say there are those who are white, affluent, educated, and are enacting some exceptionalism. They're not having gluten and they're not having vaccines because. And then you have people who simply don't trust the health system, and they may be racialized, marginalized. There's a long history of a very colonial and racist approach in, in supplying health care. Uh, and so if you're from a group like that, those, those scars run deep. And, you know, when a guy in a white lab coat shows up and says, I want to inject this into you, you know, the trust isn't there. And trust is, is it's incredible important. And then you have people who don't believe COVID is real uh, and, and don't you know, think that's a thing. And then you also have people who are just afraid. You know, they've been hearing stuff and they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid of needles and that's, it's fear driven. So we can make inroads with some. We can, we, you know, education will absolutely help. Role modeling absolutely helps. Community engagement absolutely helps. We can chip away at it. We're never going to get to 100. But we could get maybe into the 90s of people who are willing to come along with it. And some vaccine hesitancy is is diminishing over time as, as we see the vaccines work, as we see the, the feared upon uh, side effects of turning into a zombie or, or becoming magnetic are, are not proving true. So that is, you know, that's my way of saying I think we have a lot of progress or a lot of work to do, but we've made progress and I think we still will. Okay, Dr. Vaisman, we're almost out of time. Last 20 seconds to you. 
I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, of course, with the vaccination rates going high. Vaccinations remaining very effective against death and hospitalizations. But, of course, as we discussed, there's still a lot of improvement in terms of preparing for the next pandemic, preparing for the next wave for our healthcare system to be protected. Okay. Uh, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Jha, Dr. Colin Furness, and Dr. Alon Vaisman. As always, we really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.